Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina, underwritten by Anchor, where everyone can make a podcast for free. So, jumping right out of the gate, this is Warren Buffett. Does anybody, we've talked about Warren Buffett a little bit here. He is known as the Oracle of Omaha. One of the most successful investors of all time. He started with nothing and now has a net worth in multi-billions. He's one of the richest people on earth. Um, and his investment philosophy is very simple. Buy quality value companies that he perceives, whether they actually be or perceive to be, undervalued by the market and hold them for long periods of time. It's a simple but effective investment strategy. One thing that stands out to me, this is, this is a, it's probably a year or two old now, but this is a current makeup of his investment portfolio. What stands out to you about this investment portfolio? Apple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first thing that stands out to me is Apple, obviously, but other things stand out. When you say like most of the companies you see in the top five or 10, are pretty well-known, established brands, right? Yeah. And so these are companies that most people have heard of, like Bank of America, Coca-Cola, Chevron, American Express, Kraft Heinz, Occidental Petroleum. And then he's got a basket of other investments down here that make up the smaller portions. And these are, but once again, the thing that stands out to me is that these are known marquee companies. There's no secret to the sauce. These are companies that you would think about and know about and he has decided, but going back to Apple real quick, he decided uh, about 20 years ago that he didn't want to participate in the internet.com boom. Um, he thought technology stocks were risky and he was right to some degree because the internet.com bubble burst in the early 2000s, late 99 to early 2000s. And there were a lot of companies that went uh, belly up, but he also missed an opportunity for the ones that stuck around because Amazon, you used to get Amazon stock for you know single digits, double digits, and it's just gone skyrocketing the past decade. Um, but he also missed the boat on Apple, at least at least he thought he did. He really likes Apple as a company, so he started investing heavily into Apple. And so he owns, or the company that he, he represents owns, over 5% of Apple stock, all of Apple. They own 5% of Apple now. And the Apple dividends alone pay them hundreds of millions of dollars in dividends, earnings, just owning the stock. They own some ridiculous number, Let's, uh, right here. It says that is $122 billion worth of Apple stock. That's a lot, $122 billion. And so like the dividend for a quarter would be like, a, he gets like $100 million a quarter just in dividend payoffs. Um, that's insane, you know, because he owns so much, $122 billion. Can you imagine owning something and all you do is own it and you get a hundred million dollars every three months. Yeah. So I was actually in a workshop yesterday and it talked about uh, income and, and, and household income. And we looked at it since 1991. And the thing, the stark contrast that you see, which is something we already knew is the bottom 20% of households in this country stayed relatively flat in their earnings over the past 30 years, since 1991, 32 years. But if you look at the top 5%, the top 20 and the top 5% of households, their incomes actually went up over the past 30 years. So <clears throat> what that's telling us is that the wealth divide is growing. Um, <clears throat> and I can illustrate that for you very briefly to say this. <clears throat> it used to be wealth in the world was distributed like this. You had a king, an emperor, a ruler that had all the money, okay, everything, and then all the rest was for everybody else down here, okay? That's the way the world economy was split up. Everybody's poor except for a few people. Then we had the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, it was still kind of like this. There's a lot of poor people, some people in the middle, but a wealthy elite. And then after the Industrial Revolution, we had this thing called the middle class created, right? So we went to an onion pattern where you still had a wealthy elite, but you had a lot of people in the middle that were the middle class. And so now, what we're seeing now is this. 
where you still got a lot of people at the bottom, you still got wealthy elites, but there's a lot of pressure on the middle class now. So another way I, I describe this is it used to be that a single family home or single family income could provide for a home, food, groceries, housing, automotive, uh, vacation, everything you needed. And then this was in the you know, 40s and 50s. 40s and 50s. And then in the uh, 60s and 70s, 60s and 70s, uh, you went to a two-family income home. So mom and dad are both working now, you know. And you still get the same amount of stuff, though, right? So we're going to call the stuff that you buy this. So you still get the same stuff. And then in the 80s and 90s, 80s and 90s, possibly it's a 2 to a 2.5 job. And it still gets you the same amount of stuff, meaning that mom or dad might have an extra income, a side income, you know. And so now we're in the 2000s to the 2010s, and same deal, you know, 2 to 2.5, but you're starting to see a shrinking basket here. And now with the 2020s and beyond, we've had incredible inflation in the past uh, three or three years or so, 20 to 30%, depending on what commodity you're looking at. So now mom and dad are, you know, two to three jobs somewhere in there, and you're getting smaller and smaller baskets worth of stuff. So based on this trend line, what's next? You know? So the reason I bring this up is to talk to you practically about the only way you get to this and having, inc having wealth is you've got to pay yourself first. There's no other way around it. And beyond that, you've got to consider doing entrepreneurship. Because that the entrepreneurs are the folks that bring in all the money. I mean, and so I think everybody should have, you know, an extra income of some type. You know, I mean, one income alone for an individual, I think that's what we've been programmed to think is when you grow up, you go to school, you get a skill, you get a job, you know, and then you get a house and all that stuff. But to get a skill and to get a job you should be thinking, what kind of skills can I get and what kind of multiple income streams can I have? You know, I have a friend, he's a, he's a full-time um, staff member at a community college, neighboring community college. And over the years, he and I both have been looking at adjunct teaching. I don't teach any adjunct right now. I've got my hands full with uh, what I'm doing and the grants and stuff I'm working on. But so I asked him, I said, how is your part-time work going? I said, I'm sure you're teaching at multiple places now. Guess what he told me? Guess how many places this guy's teaching at right now? Ten. And they're all live. He's teaching ten classes at ten different institutions. And, but if you think about it, he's probably making twenty to thirty, uh, probably fifteen to $20,000 on the side every semester doing that. So it's a side hustle, you know. And that's just uh, the reason, like I said, I'm sharing this with you is to think about what can I do? How can I leverage myself and my knowledge and my skills to have a side hustle so we can change this paradigm that I'm talking about? Because the trend line is not good. It's just not. And I don't want to sugarcoat it. The trend line, if you ask what's next, if we keep going, is everybody's working for less and less goods. You know, that's just that's the reality of what we're facing. And I don't want us to go to that reality. We've got to we've got to reverse that trend line. So. Um, speaking of entrepreneurship, I'll share this with you, then I'll jump strongly into the lecture, which is on motivation. I had a student call me uh, two days ago. Um, it was a student of mine when I was at University of Mount Olive. And um, at the time that we first met and started talking, he was, he was down in the dumps. He wouldn't mind me sharing the story. Um, he was not happy with his, uh, his employment. At the time, he was making less than $40,000 a year. Okay, So he's, he's not making a lot of money. Um, kind of just, he wanted, his dream was to become a regional sales rep for a big company, okay? And so he got a job with another company doing similar work, but it was not the dream, right? So he kept pushing, he kept pushing, he kept hustling. We finally got the dream job a year ago. So now he makes $150,000 a year. So he called me and said, Mr. Bradshaw, I want to bend your ear on something because you've, you've helped me in the past and I want to give I want some feedback. I said, well, lay it on me. He said, well, with this new job I've got, I, I'm doing well. This is how much I make. And he told me, full disclosure, his financials. He said, but why I'm calling you is because I've got the opportunity to buy out a partner uh, involved with a, region, with a company. $1.6 million. And he said, here's the thing. 
If I buy them out, I'll have to pay them back over 10 years with interest. Um, but I think based on the financials that I'll be able to triple my salary. So to go from 150 to $450,000, $500,000 a year, minus the cost of the payback, he's going to have to pay back that $1.6 million. So we talked about all the details, and it sounds like an interesting opportunity, but my advice to him was do the diligence, hire an attorney, hire a tax accountant, make sure that all the dots, I's are dotted, T's are crossed, and then, you know, this sounds like a good opportunity, but you just got to go in with your eyes wide open. But um, the reason I share all this with you is I want you to think opportunity-minded. Um, like, you're going to eventually graduate and go to a job, likely, and at that job, I will promise you, you're going to be under, undervalued. You're going to go to work, you're going to do a job, and you're going to return 5 or 10 or 20x what your worth is. Meaning that if they're paying you $50,000, they are making a million bucks, half a million to a million dollars output on your productivity. And so you need to value yourself first. You need to know your worth. And, don't, don't like, and if an employer is not willing to pay you what you're worth, look for other opportunities. I met another student years ago that uh, at the time I was making around $40,000 myself. This student was making like $85,000. I'm like, what's the secret? Tell me what I'm missing. He said, man, I move jobs every three years. He said, I'll go to a job, I'll get skills, I'll learn, and then I'll start looking for something else. And he, the corporate ladder we think of as being a vertical thing, right? He doesn't go vertical, he goes lateral. So he'll, instead of going straight up, he'll jump over here, make ten or $20,000 more, then jump over here and make ten or $20,000 more. And he does this every three years and he just keeps, his focus is how can I, what job can I do to make more money? And so he's, he's doing that kind of methodically. So just want to share that with you, take it, think about it, but be opportunity focused, be mindful about what the market's offering you, know your worth, don't, don't be afraid to leave an organization to make more money if the opportunity's there. So questions, comments, ideas, thoughts, Red Bull. <laughs> All right, so motivating employees, we're gonna talk about this for a few minutes. This is really interesting stuff. I did my doctoral research on motivation, so I have a lot to say about it, but I'll be concise if, if I can be. And I'll say that when I started researching it, I had very little understanding of it beyond what we think we know about motivation. What do you think motivates people? Go. Money. There's a good one. It's very motivational. So would you work a job you hated indefinitely for money? I'm talking you hate it. Huh? Let's use, let's use an arbitrary number, $150,000. So, but it involves 60 hours a week, six days a week of working in terrible, horrible, hard work conditions that you, that you, that you hate. Right, it is relative. It's relative. There's some people that love terrible jobs. I, I, I don't disagree. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to get to is that money only motivates people so far. The person that sticks with it is the person that doesn't mind that horrible, what we would consider horrible. So, like, I think if you don't like the work, eventually the money doesn't matter. You keep showing up and you think, you know, as an example, if I got a phone call today Walmart's calling me. Ryan, we'll pay you $200,000. Go back to that job. I would not take it because I'm at a place in my life that it's not about money. It's about quality of life. You know, like, I mean, you got you to gotta, you gotta think about, I don't want to work a job that I hate, that I'm not satisfied with. So, And the point being is that we've studied motivation. We collectively as society have studied motivation, and we've determined that uh, if somebody is not fulfilled, if there's not an intrinsic or internal motivation connecting them to what they're doing, no amount of extrinsic motivation can bring them out of that. So another case in point, let's say you've got a crew of 20 people very dissatisfied with the work conditions. They're not happy. And then you go say, well, I'm going to give everybody a 20% raise. Hooray, people are happy. Guess what? So their motivation goes up, you know, all-time high, 20% more. What do you think happens over six months? It regresses back to the mean. In six months' time, that money, that doesn't matter anymore. That doesn't factor in. There's, they could right back to, if nothing else changes except for the money, they regress to the mean of, I'm still, I'm, I'm still upset about what I was upset about six months ago. 
So happy workers can lead to happy customers, which leads to successful businesses. Unhappy workers are likely to leave, which is costly. Engagement is employees' level of motivation, passion, and commitment. It's a tough ticket. I will talk about it, but it's tough to get people to buy in to being excited about the organization. Most people, remember the bell curve, most people hang out right there in the middle. I'm going to work hard enough to not get fires, but I'm not going to work harder than I have to because if I do that, I'm out. I'm working harder than I need to because I'm still going to get paid the same just doing average. Most people go for that average bell curve. If they're doing poor work, they know they're going to get fired, but if they're an all-star, they burn out. Why would I work myself to death when Julie over here is not doing anything? And, you know, why would I, why would I, if we're making the same money, why would I put, more, put forth more effort? So disengaged employees act out their unhappiness at work and undetermined, I'm sorry, undermine the efforts of their coworkers. Employee experience the level of satisfaction at every step along an employee's path at a company. So we're going to talk about multiple motivation theories, and this will be something that you can take out into the world, and you'll start to see it play out. So intrinsic rewards are these internal things that we give us pleasure. I play guitar. Um, who else has a hobby that they like that gives them internal like feel good? What, what's a what's a hobby that you or something that you do? Does anybody play sports, video games, video games? Go to concerts, right? Intrinsic rewards. These are things that you just enjoy enjoy doing. Listen to music. How about this? Has anybody ever done an intrinsic or fun activity? You felt like time flies. But we do something boring, time stands still. Is that okay? So, am I? We all have experienced this, correct? Mm -hmm. do, is time actually moving faster or slower? It's our perception of time is changing, correct? So, when a kid, if I take a kid to Disney World, it's like, oh my God, it's so fun. I had the best time. The day's over. What happened? But if I sit a kid down and we're watching something really boring and dull, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe it's only been two minutes. What happened? So, that perception of time change. Is something called flow. It's an actual flow theory. theory. And when you're doing intrinsic uh, activities, things that you enjoy doing, that you would do without compensation, you would do for free because you love it, time does uh, fly by. These things give you a sense of pride or achievement, pride in your performance. Extrinsic rewards are things like pay raises. We're talking money again, praise and promotion, recognition. How about this uh, nugget? In some cases, extrinsic rewards can actually uh, interfere with your intrinsic motivation. So let's say that you like to paint, Angel. You love to paint. Okay, he's a painter. He's an artist. So you do all these beautiful paintings. They're fantastic. Among the best in the world, okay? But then I say, I want to pay Angel to, do, to paint for us. Now it's a job. So now you've got to show up and do work. And that's not how, you wor that's not how it works for you. You know what I'm saying? Like... You like to be inspired and do things that you want to do, but now you're having to do things you got to do. Don't you think that messes with your motivation? Like, like your joy that you get from painting? Like, I, my uncle's an artist, and he went to school for art. He has a degree in art. But guess what he does all day? He designs logos and T-shirts and stuff, and when he gets home, he doesn't have anything to do with art hardly because that intrinsic motivation is dampened because of the extrinsic rewards of having to get paid and having to do it. So something interesting. So scientific management, the study of workers to find most efficient ways of doing things and then teaching people those te techniques. Three key elements to increase productivity, time, methods of work, and rules of work. We're going to look at this. So Frederick Taylor, I forgot to mention his name, the father of scientific management. So Taylor's four key principles, study how a job is performed, gather time and motion information, check different methods, Codify the best method into rules. Choose workers and whose skills match those rules and establish a fair level of performance and pay. And so what they basically did with these motion studies, they tried to understand, um, they would observe bricklayers and say, okay, the bricklayer takes the brick, they walk seven steps, they putty it, they put it on the wall, and then they walk seven steps back, grab the brick, and start over. They said that's a lot of wasted motion. There's a lot of wasted time and effort there. Why don't we put the bricks right beside the brick mason and let them, instead of, instead of uh, having to walk, they can just do it and figure out the best ways to do each individual job. So these time motion studies of which uh, tasks must be performed to complete a job and the time needed to do each task. So if you're in a production type job, you want to know how many things you can create in an hour uh, and understand what effort goes into creating each one of those things. 
Efficiency becomes the standard for setting goals. So Frank and Lillian Gilbreth developed the principle of motion economy, the theory that every job can be broken down into a series of elementary motions. Scientific management viewed people largely as machines that needed to be uh, properly programmed. I dislike that viewpoint. When I was leaving Walmart, you see we have these uh, we have little barcodes. This, this is my barcode for here. But at Walmart, we could actually get all the associates that were on a particular shift and we could either scan their barcode with a device like this and assign them a task in the, in the task management system. And then they would perform that task based on how much the system time said they had to do it. So if I assigned, if I assigned Diamond to the pest department and the pest department has 100 cases of product, it's going to say it's going to take you four hours and 17 minutes to process that 100 cases. Whether or not you agree with that, that's what the system says is allowed. And so... After you're done, you would let me know, and I would come back and verify, and then I would put some inputs into the system, and then over a length of time, I would be able to discern, does Diamond produce above or below average what the system says you should be doing? doing? And so that goes back to this principles of motion and time studies, and um, it, it's a little messy, though, when you get to try to do it in reality, unless you're doing something that is the exact process over and over again. The thing with like cracking freight or, or putting up groceries and, and this, in this instance pet supplies is that there's all different shapes and sizes of pet supplies and each one of them requires uh, different handling to, to put up. So are you stressed? Warnings of employee stress. Let's see if any of these ring true. Negative attitudes about work, drops in productivity, chronic lateness, absenteeism or, or missing work, careless with details, unable to get quality sleep, Withdrawal from coworkers, social withdrawal. Do any of these things ring true for people you know, maybe? Yeah? Well, negative attitudes about work. I worked with a guy for years. Four years I worked with this guy. And almost every single interaction I had with him was negative. Every single interaction. Can you imagine? Negative, just a negative fella. And toward the end of my time working with the guy, he came up to me and said this, and this is such a, it was just so out of left field. He said, I want to let you know I'm sorry for being, um, paraphrasing a little bit, but he says, I want to let you know I'm sorry for being so negative all, this, all these years. He said, I've, I've been under a lot of stress and I'm working on it and I just want to let you know. I was lost like, wow. I mean, it took four years to have that interaction, you know, and the way that I worked with this individual, I was this person's manager. I had to, you have to adjust to each individual that you manage and work with. I basically just had to tell him something needs to be done and walk away. This needs to be done by this time and, and bail. I'm not going to stand there and let him give me lip or give me drama over why it can't happen. Here's what needs to happen. I'll be back in three or four hours, get it done and walk away. Um, you know, you want to be liked. That's a, that's a challenge for management. You want people to like you. You want people to be friendly. Not everybody's going to be that, you know. But at the end of the day, your job as manager is to get things done. And so sometimes you just have to be direct. This is what needs to happen. So how to help with stress. Reach out to coworkers, family, and friends for support. Make time for exercise. There's something about endorphins I hear. Choose healthy foods. Focus on positive thinking. Plan regular breaks. Develop a consistent sleep schedule, prioritize tasks. One thing that's not mentioned is work in work environments that you like. I mean, I, I truly believe, I mean, everybody wants to make, you know, big money, but working somewhere you like and enjoy, there's something to that. Uh, something that money can't buy, that, that, that happiness thing that, that you get working somewhere you like. So um, Elson Mayo and the Hawthorne studies, researchers studied worker efficiency under different levels of light. Productivity increased regardless of light condition. Researchers decided that it was a human or psychological factors at play. Um, there's this thing called the Hawthorne effect. The tendency for people to act differently when they know they are being studied. So um, there's, a, there's several movies about this, this tendency, but um, they realized that they were observing animals in the wild, and animals will act differently if they know there's a human present. If they know there's a human watching them, their behavior is different than if they are if there's a camera there just watching what they're doing. And so same thing's true with people. If I'm if I come in to do a classroom observation 
on somebody teaching, how do you think that teacher's going to act if there's somebody watching them doing teaching? Right? You remember this in high school, right? The principal will come in and watch for a few minutes, right? And then leave. Yeah, if that teacher has anything controversial to say, they're probably not going to say it during that five or ten minutes that the principal's there. But if the principal just had a camera on the wall hidden and watched, you're not, you, you know, you're being studied at that point. So that's one of the reasons I record my lectures is that I put it out there for the world. There's total transparency, you know. Uh, so the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Has anybody taken psychology yet? Sociology? Psychology? Psychology? Good. Did you study this? Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Um, so it's the theory of motivation based on unmet human needs from basic psychological needs, physiological needs, uh, to safety, social, and esteem needs, to self-actualization needs. Believe motivation arises from need. Needs that have already been met do not motivate. If a need is filled, another higher level need emerges. That's a really good theory. I've studied it for quite a while now. I believe in it. Um, this is the hierarchy of needs. So just to explain it briefly, when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing we do in the morning? Eat breakfast. Eat breakfast. That's one. I go to the bathroom first thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so go to the bathroom, maybe take a shower, you know, maybe eat breakfast. All three of those things have something in common. Those are physiological needs. The need to use the restroom, the need to clean yourself, your body, and the need to eat. Those are all physiological needs. After those needs are met, I'm not hungry anymore. I'm not thirsty. I'm ready for the next thing. I need to feel safe. You know, If I feel safe and everything's good, then I can start being concerned with social interactions, going to work, communicating with customers, students, things like that. But the moment I stop feeling safe, it regresses. If something happens and I feel uneasy, like if we had a, a scare, you know, like a, a tornado scare, you know, so we're on high alert. The rest of the day, I feel a little off, right? I, I kind of need to calm down. But every once in a while, though, everything aligns. And we get to these moments of self-actualization. And they're very, very brief. So you ever have those moments where you just say, man, everything is right, right now, right? But those moments don't last but just a moment, right? When you're feeling really good, everything's awesome. Because what happens is the physiological needs eventually kick back in. you got to go to sleep. You're hungry again. You're thirsty again. Something emerges that gets your attention and keeps you from reaching that actualization. You've seen the Snickers commercial, you're not yourself when you're hungry. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that kicks in. And so there's some other motivation theories we want to talk about. Hertzberg's research. Yes, what creates enthusiasm for workers and makes them work to their full potential? Hertzberg found job content factors were most important to workers. Workers like to feel they contribute to the company. I, what I do matters. Job environment factors maintain satisfaction but did not motivate employees. So there's motivators and there's hygiene factors. Hygiene factors are somewhat what they sound like but not totally. I'll explain in a second. Motivators are job factors that cause employees to be productive and that give them satisfaction. People that work somewhere that does a good social good, like I love coming to work because I help make society a better place, those types of feel-good jobs, people can get motivated behind that. But hygiene factors are job factors that can cause dissatisfaction if missing, but that do not necessarily motivate employees if increased. This is kind of a hard one to wrap your mind around. So a hygiene factor, what else would be? Air conditioning, internet, power, um, infrastructure like a building. Like if we were having class and all of a sudden all the power went out, the internet went out, we take for granted the fact we have power and air conditioner and uh, internet. But yeah, if the internet went out on us, that would be a hygiene factor. I would be very dissatisfied. And when the, the, every once in a while the campus loses internet and we're like, what do we do? What do we do? There's no internet. I don't know what to do next. You know, as we're all walking around like, I don't know. I, I can't send an email. What am I supposed to do? And, and it's like that in a lot of jobs. My wife actually did have a hygiene factor at one of her last jobs. It's been several years ago, but the bathroom did not work. And so you, you take for granted there's an operational toilet at the place of employment, but when it's not there and you have to walk out to another place of employment to use a restroom, that was very disagreeable. But adding a toilet back did not increase their motivation. You know, you don't go to a job and say, hey, we got a working toilet. Who's motivated to work? Nobody's motivated because they have a working toilet. But if you take it away, that creates a demotivator or demoralizer a dissatisfaction. So it's one of those things that you may not be motivated by, but if you take it away, yeah, that's going to make me upset. 
So uh, this is just a chart with some uh, motivators and hygiene or maintenance factors. So motivators can be the work itself, achievement, recognition, responsibility, growth and advancement. That motivates people to do things. The hygiene factors are the things, once again, that may not motivate me, but if you take them away, they demoralize or dis demotivate me. Company policy and administration, supervision, working conditions, interpersonal relationships with coworkers, salary status and job security. All those things, you know, if I come for the salary, but I'm really motivated by this other stuff, salary's fine, but if you talk, start talking, we're gonna, we need to trim everybody's salary by 10%. Yeah, the motivation level that I had goes way down at that point. It's a strong demotivator. And so this is a comparison between Maslow and Hertzberg. And one big difference here is that you can see um, there still is a stratification here, but Hertzberg has a lot more um, nuance to it. You know, it's basically building off of Maslow's act, uh, actualization or uh, hierarchy of needs there. So you'll start to see a overlap between these motivation theories with a few extra little pieces put in there. I actually have my own motivation theory I'll share with you in a minute uh, that I, I guess I need to do some research and write it up. But So uh, reignite employees' drive in simple ways by, to reinvigorate work life. Uh, give the employee a new challenge. Give them something new and exciting to do. Redecorate your space to get away from the same old, same old. Don't complain. Think of things to celebrate. There's always something to complain about, but there's always something to celebrate. I will send these uh, slides out to all you guys, by the way, too. Uh, help others advance in their careers. If you want somebody to help you, help somebody else. There's this automatic thing in human psychology where they feel this, this need to reciprocate. So if I do something nice for Diamond, you're gonna feel obligated to do something nice for me whether you do it or not, you know. Um, you know, like, real simple example, I'll take my son's, like a little prize, you know, something simple, and within an hour or two, he'll bring me a picture he painted. He'll draw me a picture. I got you something, Dad, you know, here you go. And that's a very simple illustration of reciprocation. So do something for somebody else and watch what happens for you. So then we get into theory X and theory Y. So, so far we've talked about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We've talked about Hertzberg, two-factor or hygiene theory. McGregor had this idea called theory X and theory Y, two different types of people. So theory X workers dislike work and seek to avoid it. This is the general premise. Most people dislike work and they seek to avoid it. Workers must be forced, controlled, directed, or threatened with punishment to get them to perform. Workers prefer to be directed and avoid responsibility, and primary motivators are fear and punishment. Do you guys think this is true? You think it's true? Why? Can't hear you, I'm sorry. You know people like this? What do you think, Diamond? Right. Yeah. Who else agrees or disagrees with Theory X? I don't think it's really that much for motivators. Because you could threaten someone with fear of punishment. Yeah. I think, yeah, in a workplace scenario, you could threaten to fire somebody, but to them, that's not a punishment. They'll just quit, you know, like. Yeah. Uh, in our society, we threaten people with jail. They still commit crimes, you know. <laughs> They're like, I'll go to jail for a little while. Okay, sure, sign me up, you know. I'm like, well, okay. So the things we think are the motivators are not really deterrents, you know. Um, so, so that's theory X. I don't have a clear sense of where everybody is, but I think most people are somewhere in the middle. So Theory X, managers don't live to make their employees happy. For example, Charles Ergen, the co-founder and chair of Dish Network, makes employees work long hours and a whole lot of mandatory overtime with few paid holidays. Employees describe the Ergen-created company culture as one of condescension and distrust. Yet the company's earnings have consistently beaten market expectation. So would you prefer to work for Theory X or Theory Y? And before you answer, let's go to Theory Y. 
So theory Y is people like to work. It's a part of life. Workers seek goals to which they are committed. Commitments to goals depends upon perceived rewards. Most people will seek responsibility. People can use creativity to solve problems. Intellectual capacity is only partially realized and people are motivated by a variety of rewards. So let's talk about it in the context of school. Be honest. Just tell me straight up. Who would come to school just to come? I see some head shaking no. Who would come to school just to come? Just to learn. That's it. Like, to learn, yeah. Yeah, Diamond would. So be real. Like, Stephanie, would you come to school just to learn? No, not really. Yeah. Sure. Maybe. Yeah, there you go. So. Right, right. So that's, that is really why we have Theory X and Theory Y, because if we offer people just the opportunity to do something, some people say, eh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a Theory X on that, you know. But I would want to think that society, if you took away all work and all, like, mandates on learning and stuff and just said, do what you want, I think we would probably end up kind of back where we are right here, which is people organize around jobs and training and learning to to enhance what people do you know so um at least that's where we ended up on the pathway we came from so i don't know um it's an interesting discussion i would i'm a geek though but i would like to learn just for the sake of learning you know and when i started out my college career i came to school because i thought there was a outcome to get to school equals opportunity equals you know jobs and money that's what i started with what i ended with was School equals knowledge, and knowledge equals opportunity, but also it expands to other knowledge. Like, the more you learn, the less you know. I know that's a cliche, but it's true. You realize, man, I don't know anything about this, I don't know anything about that, and you start going down the rabbit hole. So, um, McGregor's X and Y theory, three steps to empowerment. Find out what people think the problems in organizations are. Let them design solutions. Get out of the way and let them put those solutions into actions. Yeah, there's something to be said for autonomy. That's a word that I like to use a lot. What is autonomy? I've mentioned this word before. Autonomy is empowering people to make choices for themselves, to have their own power to do things. And the great thing about autonomy is it's extremely intrinsic. Like, if I say, you know, make me a pizza and you guys get to create whatever you want, using whatever you want, it'll be a fun activity that you'll try to get really creative with, maybe. But if I give you a list of a 30-step instructions to make me a pizza, you're not as excited to do that, probably, you know, right? I mean, I don't, does anybody follow the recipe book? I don't, but I mean, you know, I like to try to create it, uh, you know, a little variation, so. And then we get to Z theory. So William Uchi researched cultural difference between the U.S. and Japan. Type J's are committed to the organization and the group. Type A's are focused on the individual. So Z theory is a hybrid approach of types A and J, this balance between the individual and the organization and group. Because um, our culture for America is very individualized. We, 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 we push individual achievement, you know, individual training, you know, individual learning. But Japan looks at things collectively. They look at my success is based on the group success. If the group fails, I fail. And so uh, it's, it's just two different ways of looking at things. And you can see this crossover, the American versus Japanese in this type Z right here. Long-term employment, you get these outcomes, collective decision-making, individual responsibility, slow evaluation and promotion, implicit informal control with explicit formalized control, moderately specialized career paths, holistic concerns for employees. Let me slow this down right here. There we go. All right, so that's Uchi in a nutshell. Got a few more go, uh, theories. Goal-setting theory is exactly what it sounds like, and that's the great thing about a lot of these theories. You get what the theory is from the title of the theory. What do you think goal-setting theory is? Mm -hmm. The idea that setting ambitious but attainable goals can motivate warriors, uh, workers to improve performance if the goals are 
They accept it, accompanied by feedback, facilitated by organizational conditions. The key word here is attainable. If I said, you know, if I said somebody's got to be able to do 300 push-ups in 30 days, for most people that are not fit, that's going to be impossible, right? But you might could do 20 push-ups in 30 days. You know, you might could get to you could do 20 that you can fire off if you start conditioning now. So if I say 300, what do you think that does to people's motivation? 300 push-ups, 30 days, go. They automatically say not attainable, right? It's not realistic. But... If I say 30, 30 push-ups in 30 days, you know, that might be attainable in some people's mind. They say, you know what, that might be attainable. And if I come close to it, you know, I'll be getting closer to the goal. What's up, you have a comment? Oh, thought you did. So attainable, there's these things called SMART goals, and the R in SMART is realistic. Um, if you give people unrealistic goals, they're not gonna be motivated. They're gonna be demotivated. Expectancy theory is another theory expectation right so if i give you something to do there's an expectation that if i do x y is going to happen right if i come to school and do my work i expect to get a good grade right if i if i do a good job and there's a bonus structure in place i expect to get that bonus or if you said you're going to pay me something i expect to get paid that thing so the amount of effort employees exert on a specific task depends on their expectation of the outcome Employees ask, can I accomplish the task? What is my reward? Is the reward worth the effort? Expectations can vary from person to person. So how many of you, when you go to a store, you look at, a, look at something and the price is not on it and you get frustrated? Why, you know you don't talk about? You go look at a shelf, you see something that you want or you're interested in, but you don't have a price. And you have to think, is it worth me going to ask somebody what the price is because the price is the evaluation that we have that we use to, to evaluate our expectation of, am I going to buy this or not? And so if I don't have a price on it, I don't know what I can expect, you know. And if the price is what I think is a good price, uh, then I have a method of evaluation. So this brings back to the reward. If I'm being asked to work overtime this weekend, what is, what is the outcome? They may say, oh, we'll pay you double time. You know, that may get you interested, you know, or the time and a half or double time. One of those may get you interested. But if they say, you know, and on top of that, we'll do one extra thing. We'll give you a $50 bonus or something. That might be the thing that puts you over the top, you know. So, but if you do that task and you don't get that reward, then you get demotivation. And people, they remember that. They, they say next time you come around and you don't deliver, they, they know what to expect. And so <clears throat> this is how expectancy theory works. Can I accomplish it? Yes or no? If the answer is no, then they're not motivated at all. I can't do this. If they can accomplish it, is the reward worth it? If the answer is no, then I'm not motivated. If the answer is yes, then I am motivated. I use this with my oldest kid all the time. And so, like, I'll need something done. And to her, she's at the age now where it is about money and extrinsic. So I think of a dollar amount that I would be okay to pay to get her to do something. You know, like, cut the grass take out the trash, whatever it may be, you know. And so if I can get that expectation alignment, because she knows that if she does it, she's going to get that, put that payday or that reward. So, all right, then we get to equity theory. Something, once again, that you've noticed between goal setting, expectancy, and now equity, they tell you what the motivation theory is up front. So equity is the idea that employees try to maintain equity between inputs and outputs compared to others in similar positions. <clears throat> Meaning that, what does equity mean? We've talked about this a little bit. If I do something, I don't want my output to be any more than anybody else in the same type position. So if I am a high-skilled at what I do, and I can put out 20 products an hour, but James over here gets paid the same thing I do, he's only doing 15 there's an inequity there, right? In my mind, I'm thinking over eight hours, I'm doing 40 more units over eight hours than James is doing. And so I'm not getting paid for those extra 40 units. So what ends up happening is over a week or two, I lower my productivity to James's. And now I'm doing 15 and he's doing 15. And that's what equity theory does. And they've studied this quite a bit. And so 
Um, they actually did a study. This, this is actually kind of a, a wrong study how they did this, but it was in another country. They actually brought somebody into the office and said, we got some good news for you. We're going to pay you $2 more an hour than these other 10 people over here. But don't tell them, okay? And so this person walks out, and the motivation level is super high. I'm getting $2 more an hour, but the other 10 people, they don't know this, but I'm more motivated. So they look at this person's motivation compared to others, and it was higher. Well, then after a few weeks, they brought him back in the office and said, actually, we made a mistake. Uh, it's actually $2 less per hour, not $2 more. What do you think happened to the motivation? It... Instead, So if this was the baseline, the group of 10, and his motivation was here, slightly above it, getting paid $2 more, his baseline, he's, he went way below the baseline. So if he was up by a factor of two, he went down by like a factor of four to six. What, I mean, it severely demotivated him to, because there was an inequity. He saw that, okay, I, it's okay to be inequitable as long as I'm getting the better end of the deal. It's okay for there to be inequity as long as I get a bigger piece of the pie. But when they get a bigger piece of the pie, then it's a problem, you know. And so that's how equity theory works. Workers often base perception of their outcomes on specific person or group. Perceived, keep this keyword in mind, perceived. Perceived inequity can lead to lower productivity, reduced quality, increased absenteeism, and even resignation. The reason I point out perceived is because as a manager, as a parent, uh, there's not always true inequities. Like, my, for, going back to my oldest kid again, uh, if I buy, it used to be this bad, I would buy a large fry, and I'm being facetious a little bit, but if I say, you kids split it, <clears throat> they'd be counting french fries, you know what I'm saying? Right. And if they both had 24 french fries, they'd break out the ruler and measure each one of them to make sure, you know, the, the fry inches is equal. And if it's not, they're tearing fries in half and trying to figure it out. And that goes straight into equity theory, a perceived inequity. So, you know, and some employees are that crazy about it. They, get, they, they sense the slightest perceived inequity. Oh, this person got to come in 10 minutes late. They're the favorites. Nobody likes me. I'm the least favorite worker. So... You know, and then that these little slight perceived inequities, whether they be true or not, can really create a harmful culture in the workplace and create uh, bad outcomes. Has any have you ever experienced inequity in the workplace where you felt like you or a co coworker was treated differently, and it made you feel, or they they did something that was different, and made you feel weird, or you thought that happened? Yes, sir. Well, you got an example, Angel? Okay. And I thought, you know, oh, he's just trying to get money, 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 so he doesn't have to work that much. Uh -huh. But it turned out to be the opposite. So then uh, they would make him do, like, all these different things. So he'd end up working a lot more than the rest of us. Okay. He'd take more overtime. He'd take all this. And um, I think one day they, they stayed late to, like, 1 a.m. just opening boxes. Right. Yeah. So I guess he wanted to, like, um, take it easy at work or just be a friend with the manager. Sure. There's a ton of examples like that. So equity theory, um, just keep in mind that people will either real or perceive they will feel different. And so you want to try to treat people fairly. And in life, equity is about, it's, it's a little more complicated because um, let's say you want everybody to have 10 bucks to go on a trip. Well, one daughter has eight dollars, another daughter has five. Well, you give one daughter two bucks and you give the other daughter five, so now they both have ten. That's equity, you know. But the one that had eight dollars doesn't see it that way. They say, Well, you gave this person five, I would like for you to give me five too. The problem with that is now that person has thirteen and the other person only has ten. You see where I'm going with this, right? So now there's an imbalance in the force, there's an inequity. Because now, if you know, I mean, it's like this person has more money. So that's, that's, that's kind of uh, how certain things in our society work. And we, we try to do what's good and fair and right for everybody. But you're never, and keep this in mind, I'll say it again and again, you will never make everybody happy in the workplace, ever. It's impossible. I mean, if, you, if you're the only one that works there, you might can make you happy, maybe. 
But if there's more than one person that works somewhere, you will never be able to please everybody. And you need to go ahead and get your mind wrapped around that and say, you know, I'm going to do what I can to be fair and just and treat people right. But for, for whatever reason, there's always going to be one person that's not happy, you know, to, 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 to flow. And that's just, you have to get past it. All right. Any questions on anything we've talked about? Because that concludes. Uh, I can do a real quick recap. So who remembers the theory we talked about today? Go. Theory we talked about. Anyone? Who? Okay, what was theory X? Anybody remember? Lead through fear and intimidation and that people don't like to work. What was theory Y real quick? People like work. Right? They're intrinsically motivated to work. That's natural. All right. What's another theory we talked about? We just talked about it. Go. Who? Mas Maslow's hierarchy of needs? What is that? Oh, my gosh. That is amazing. And so... They have these brief actualization moments when everything's in alignment, but when one gets out of alignment, you regress back down that. That's called that's something we didn't talk about. It's called propinquity. Uh, what else? Another theory we talked about: hygiene factors. Hertzberg, right? What do we say about hygiene factors? They don't necessarily motivate, right? But if you take them away, they're demotivators, right? What else did we talk about? The last three were equity, goal setting. And expectancy, right? Equity, we perceive things as fair or not. Expectancy, if I do this, what's the expectation? And goal setting is have realistic, but but um, I guess reach goals that you're trying to grab. So, all right, what do we say about homework? Uh, make sure that the test is done. Make sure that Tucker assignment is turned in on okay. the Tucker, the automobile, oh. the SA. That's for next uh, Tuesday, so. All right, guys, enjoy your weekend. Be safe. I'll see you on Tuesday.